In pursuit of God, discovering purpose, maximizing potential. 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 Jesus House for All Nations. This message has been recorded live at Jesus House for All Nations. God bless you. Today I want to talk about overcoming the pressures of life. Overcoming the pressures of life. And it's an apt message uh, in the light of the week we are coming into uh, where we focus as a nation on the mental health of the nation. Many would agree that the world is now like a pressure cooker. Dealing with the stress, the anxieties, and the worries that come from work and work-related issues, from health issues, from relationships that have gone sour, from finances, especially the onerous weight of debt. And for a lot of students, the pressures that come from being in school, peer pressures, the pressures of examinations, especially at a time like this, from dealing with the times when we encounter trauma, sometimes a tragedy. These situations are just some of the challenging and difficult circumstances that lead to stress, to anxiety, and to worry, and that put pressure on the average person who lives in our world today. Not to talk about the fear of existing, the fear of terrorism, the, the, the fear, certainly in some parts of our city, of walking on the streets safely. The list goes on and on. You just find that increasingly we're living on uh, such intense pressure that it can actually affect our physical and certainly does affect our physical and definitely our mental health. As I was preparing this message, I came across some statistics that I actually found shocking. The most stressed age group are those between 18 and 24. Those are the most stressed people in the world today, certainly in our country. 82% of students suffer from stress and anxiety. 82% of students are suffering from stress and anxiety. The average young adult will, will spend more than six hours a day out of 24, eight of, seven or eight of which they will spend sleeping. So out of what is left, the average young adult will spend more than six hours a day stressed out. And for many, that's life. Just dealing with one pressure, one stress after another. And sadly, as we well know, some of us are not handling it right. Hence the focus on mental health to encourage us to be better able to deal with it and to take away the stigma that is associated with it so that we can come alongside to help each other as we deal with the stresses of life. But then it, it's not something that is peculiar to this generation, this age, this season. As we look through the Bible, we find that the pressures and the stresses of life were also existing in those days. 
And the Bible does have a lot to say about how we cope, how we deal with, and how we overcome the pressures that we face in life. If you looked at the life of David, you would find that he faced pressure after pressure, challenge after challenge. In fact, some of his psalms are clearly the psalms that are clearly the words of someone who had actually sank into the pits of depression or at least was close to it. And what can we say about Job? If you want to talk about pressure, what happened to Job is the kind of pressure that you don't pray for your enemy to even have, assuming you have an enemy, where literally everything around you collapses. Everything you hold dear literally is, in a sense, destroyed right before you. We can also talk about the pressures that Elijah faced. Even with his awesome victories on Mount Camel, we see Elijah come down from the mountain and sit on the juniper tree and start to have suicidal thoughts. We can talk about the pressures that the disciples faced in ministry and especially after Jesus had died. The pressure that comes, the stress, the anxiety, the worry that comes when someone you have looked up to, someone you thought had come to solve your problem, suddenly someone you had, you had, you had worshipped, someone you, you, you had seen as God incarnate, suddenly is arrested, is tried, and right before your eyes is crucified on a cross. The pressure must have been unbear unbearable as they faced a hopeless and a bleak future. The pressure that Peter must have felt when he was forced to deny Jesus, having stood strongly and declared that he would, even to the point of death, as, as Siam mentioned, to the point of death, he would, sub, he would be there for Jesus. And then having to deny Jesus, the pressure he must have felt, the, the dejection that he must have been subjected to or he must have found himself in. And what can we say about the Apostle Paul? Many times he talks about being distressed, cast down. Many times he talks about being shipwrecked. Many times he was beaten and left on the point of death. All that pressure, but somehow they dealt with it. And that's what we want to encourage ourselves with today. Uh, how can we deal with these pressures of life? And let's understand that these pressures will come. Disappointment is a part of life. Sometimes it doesn't work out the way we want it to work out. Challenges are part of the course we take in life. Life, I wish it was smooth all the way, but I have come to realize that, that there is turbulence in life, that we do encounter obstacles, that we find ourselves in situations where we are dealing with things that we feel are more than we can handle. The psalmist puts it like this. He says in Psalms 34 verse 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. The afflictions are not of the unrighteous. These are people who are walking with God, who, are who have pleased God. They are right with God. But the psalmist says they still have afflictions and not a few. The psalmist says there are many the afflictions of the righteous. But thank God for the latter part of that scripture. The Bible says, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Can someone say amen to that? So there are 10 things I want to share with you that can help us deal with these pressures and overcome these pressures. 10, ten things that are gleaned from the word of God. Number one is that 
we must purpose to lean on God. It is impossible, I have concluded, to handle the many pressures that come our way without God. If we take God out of a life, I am of the opinion that the life will invariably succumb to pressure. The human being without God is not designed to withstand the pressures of life. It is only God that gives us the grace and the ability, the capacity to cope with the pressures of life. Jesus puts it this way, and very aptly so, in Matthew, the 11th chapter, verses 28 to 30. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He, in effect, is saying the only way to deal with this pressure, with these burdens that, that invariably we have to contend with and carry is to come to him. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He literally says there's an exchange that needs to take place. We need to take the pressures, the anxieties, the worries, the burdens, the crushing weight, and go to him. He gives us a guarantee that if we do that, he will, in exchange for us bringing the burdens to him, give us rest. Our souls will find a place to rest. And as Dr. Zoe pointed out, it really is a problem of the soul. That's where the weight rests, in the soul. And Jesus is the only one that I know that can give us soul rest. The Passion Translation says this, Are you weary, carrying a heavy burden? Then come to me, I will refresh your life. I am your oasis. And don't we all need an oasis in life? Don't we need a place where tired, bruised, battered, overwhelmed, literally almost crushed by the weight of life, we can go and have a drink that refreshes us. And that place is only in Jesus that that can happen. Can someone say amen? amen. So the first thing is we must lean on God. But then in leaning on God, the enemy is an expert at helping us to think that we are not qualified to do so. Because usually, at least in some cases, the circumstances that we are facing that, have brought, that has brought about the pressure, the stress, the anxiety, the worry, oftentimes, at least in certain cases, is as a result of our own actions. We are responsible. We are guilty. It's because of what we did that we found ourselves in this situation. Because of how we were careless with regards to money, that's how we found ourselves in debt. Maybe because of greed, we shouldn't have bought things that we shouldn't have bought. That's how we found ourselves here. Maybe one action or the other is the reason that we have found ourselves in this place where we are pressured. And somehow the enemy convinces us that because it is as a result of our action, our anger, or some expression of a negative emotion that got us there, because of our carelessness or our irresponsibility, the enemy convinces us in our minds that we are not qualified to access the grace of God for that situation. We are literally condemned by our actions. Our sins are standing and speaking against us. And most of us, as a result, will not go to the one place where the problem can be solved, it, Jesus, because we feel unworthy to do so. I wanted to tell you this morning that that is a lie of Satan. That if you have done something that exposed you, 
that got you into that situation that is overwhelming, there is ample love and ample grace in God to cover your sins as long as you will come to him and repent and ask for his forgiveness. The, the psalmist says that the sacrifices that God can't refuse are a broken and a contrite heart. The Bible says in 1 John 1 verses 8 and 9, and I like the Amplified Translation, that God is faithful, true to his nature. It is his nature to forgive us our sins, our wrongdoings when we come to him and to restore us, to allow us to access that place of rest that is in Jesus. Can someone say amen? amen. And so let the devil not tell anyone a lie that you're not qualified the cross of Calvary qualifies you even if your actions disqualify you as long as you come to him with a broken and a contrite heart. Number two, how do we overcome these pressures of life? We mustn't underestimate the power of prayer. The challenge is this. When we say prayer, our minds instantly think of what we have defined prayer to be. So the moment I say prayer, if you're truthful, people think of somebody praying in tongues, traveling, somebody binding and losing, somebody deflecting arrows from the enemy and sending arrows back to the enemy. Invariably, our minds see prayer as work. Oftentimes, if we're truthful, hard work. And oftentimes, if we're, if we're truthful further, Work that is tedious and a, and, 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 and a drudgery, but we have no choice but to do it. I want you to disabuse your mind of those notions. That is not what God means by prayer. Primarily, what God means by prayer, and those things might form a part of prayer, but primarily what God means by prayer is the communion between a son and a daughter who is loved by a father with the father and vice versa. And when you think about it like that, it suddenly takes the pressure off you. You suddenly realize that anybody can pray. The people who we call prayer generals, or the people who we look up to as those who pray, are only better than us because they commit, committed themselves and applied themselves to talking to their father. And so, in terms of dealing with and overcoming pressure, one of the major ways is that we talk to God about it. In the main scripture that addresses anxiety and worry in the Bible, the Bible gives the recipe for dealing with it as prayer. Philippians 4 verses 6 to 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be, known, be made known to God. What's the Bible saying? The Bible is saying, how do I deal with anxiety? How do I deal with worry? How do I deal with the pressures? The Bible says, by letting God know about my desire to come out of it. When the Bible says, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, the Bible is really saying by prayer. Because supplication and thanksgiving are just expressions of prayer. And the Bible is saying, by prayer, make your requests known to God. Come to God to talk about it. Let God know how you are feeling about it. Let God know the pressure you're under. 
commune with your Father. And we have an iron cast guarantee from God that when we do that, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds through Christ Jesus. How do I cope with the pressure? How do I ensure that my mind remains intact with the pressures of life? I'm having a hard time at work. I'm facing a difficult marriage. I've gone through a traumatic divorce. I've had to deal with the loss of a loved one. I'm facing my business. My business is facing challenges. Or I'm just facing pressure of some other kind. How do I cope with it? By constantly talking to God about it. As I do that, God gives me supernaturally a peace that the world cannot understand that garrisons my heart so that in the midst of the trial, my heart is at peace. Can someone say amen? amen. The Passion Translation says, don't be pulled in different directions or worried about a thing. And that's how we feel sometimes. It goes on to say, be saturated in prayer throughout each day. Offering your faith-filled requests before God with overflowing gratitude. It says this tellingly. It says, tell him every detail of your life. Tell him in prayer every detail of your life. Talk to God about it. Talk to God about the pressure from the children. And then he gives us a guarantee. Then God's wonderful peace that transcends human understanding will make the answers known to you through Christ Jesus. Can someone say amen? amen? And when you look at the psalmist, you get so much encouragement from the psalmist. What I love about the psalms is that we have a bird's eye view like we've, we, like we've never had into anybody's life, into the life of a man who walked with God, who held on to God, who understood God, we see the, the, the lows and the highs, the valleys and the hills as he grapples with God. And there are many psalms that you read, your heart goes out to the psalmist as you see him grappling with the pressures of life, almost succumbing to it. Amongst all the psalms, one that really touches my heart is Psalms 55. I wish I could read the entire psalm to you just to give you an idea of not just a man who comes to the brink of tipping over, of depression, of giving up, but a man who comes to the brink but doesn't tip over because he holds on to God. But I'll read verses 1 to 7, maybe 12 to 14, 16 and 17 and 20 to 22. Let's read that together. I, I, I'm reading from the Passion Translation. If you don't have the Passion Translation, listen as I read it. Just listen anyway as I read it. This is how the psalmist starts. God, listen to my prayer. Don't hide your heart from me when I cry out to you. Come close to me and give me your answer. Here I am, mourning and restless. I am preoccupied with the threats of my enemies and crushed by the pressure of their opposition. They surround me with trouble and terror. In their fury, they rise up against me in an angry uproar. My heart is trembling inside my chest as the terror of death seizes me. Fear and dread overwhelm me. I shudder before the horror I face. I say to myself, 
if only I could fly away from all of this. If only I could run away to the place of rest and peace. I would run far away where no one could find me, escaping a wilderness retreat. It wasn't an enemy who taunted me. If it was my enemy filled with pride and hatred, then I could have endured it. I would have just run away, but it was you, my intimate friend, one like a brother to me. It was you, my advisor, the companion I walked with and worked with. We once had sweet fellowship with each other. We worshipped in unity as one, celebrating together with God's people. By this time, he is on the verge of literally caving in. The enemies around him, the pressure, the weight. And then when he thought it couldn't get worse, guess who betrayed him? His closest friend. At this point, it's like it's black. It's dark all around. Hope seems to have flown away. But, go on, say but with me. Please say it boldly. One more time. And there's always a but for the Christian if you will accept it. It never ends with the darkness. It never ends in despair. It never ends in despondency. There's always a but. He says, but as for me, I will call upon the Lord to save me and I know he will. That's our assurance. That we serve a God who hears. We serve a God who answers prayers. He's not deaf that he cannot hear. His hands are not too short that he cannot save. He says, but as for me, I will call upon the Lord to save me and I know he will. Every evening I will explain my needs to him. Every morning I will move my soul toward him. Every waking hour, I will worship only him, and he will hear and respond to my cry. He says, I was betrayed by my friend, though I lived in peace with him. While he was stretching out his hand of friendship, he was secretly breaking every promise he had ever made to me. His words were smooth and charming, yet his heart was disloyal and full of hatred, his words soft as silk while all the time scheming my de demise. So here's what I've learned through it all. And you know, there are certain people when they tell you a life lesson, listen. Especially when you can look at their experiences. How many know if Solomon tells you anything about women, just listen to what he's saying. Don't even bother to second guess it. After 1,000 of them, he has... Is a PhD, doctor, professor, emeritus in women. Listen to what he's saying. And the psalmist, if David tells you anything about dealing with life's challenges, this was a man that dealt with issues in life. Some of the issues David dealt with, all of us together will never come near that. He dealt with stuff. Are you talking about the love of a loved one? Are you talking about rebellious children? Are you talking about people taking his throne? What are you? Just name it. David dealt with it. Wars, he fought them. If you're talking about stress and pressure, the potential for anxiety and worry, no one 
experience them like David. So David says, so here's what I learned through it all. What did he learn? That's a life lesson. He says, leave all your cares and anxieties at the feet of the Lord and measureless grace will strengthen you. David says, this is the way it works. Just carry everything and go and leave it at the feet of the Lord. He says, just by the act of leaving it. You see, the problem is most of us take it to the feet of the Lord. Then when we get up to go, we take it back with us and go away. So we, we've gone through the process of going, but we have not gone through the process of leaving. So David says, leave it at the feet of the Lord. He says, when you do that and get up without it, God now gives a certain grace. Amen? Say to the person next to you, leave it at the feet of the Lord. Go on, say it boldly, boldly, boldly. Number three, and a lot of these things I'm sharing with you are things that you already know. All I'm praying for today is that God will give you a deeper revelation of them that will change your life. Number three, the Word of God. Joshua is about to embark on a journey, literally the call of his life. On that journey, he's going to encounter great success. But then he's also going to encounter defeat and failure. In achieving the success, he's going to go through unimaginable stress. All you have to do is read the story. And don't read it in a cursory way. Put yourself in his shoes and you know that that man faced some of the toughest and most stressful situations a man could face. That evening as he walked around Jericho, I dare say that it was a man who was walking around a problem and wondering how on earth are we going to solve this problem. The city, the Bible tells us, was tightly shut up. Impregnable walls, and yet they had to go into Jericho. I can imagine the agitation in his mind as he walked around until he had the encounter with the captain of the hosts of heaven. We read that, you know, when you read the Bible, you, you, you know, because so many people died in the Old Testament, you know, when you, when you hear 11,000 died, you know, how many know you just turned the next page? 11,000 is 11,000 people who died. That's a, that's a crisis. And I bet you some of the 11,000 were some people he knew. The pain of a leader to lose so many of his people. The confusion when they came back from the battle of Ai and tens of thousands had died, killed by the enemy. The stress of wondering what they had done to God that had caused God to turn his back against them. The challenge of leading a group of people who today were with you, tomorrow they were cursing you. I can only imagine the stress this man was under as he led these people into the promised land. The pressure of leadership where you're having to try and hear God and discern God so that you can lead the people. And then the pain of failure and trying not to take on the failure on yourself. 
And because God knew this is what he was going to deal with, it's instructive for us to hear God's instruction to him as to how you will cope with these pressures, how you will overcome these pressures, how you will deal with defeat and failure and hopelessness, how you will cope when you lose loved ones. It is important to hear what God said to him, how you cope with all these pressures that life will bring you. The pressure that surely must have been one of the biggest pressures on Joshua was how on earth do I feel Moses' shoes? Is it any wonder that in the first seven verses, God says to him at least three or four times, don't be afraid, don't be dismayed. Why do you think God was telling him that? Because he's looking at Moses and thinking, who, who's going to follow this guy? I mean, who on earth is going to be like Moses? These people are going to judge me because I'm not like Moses. Who, who raises, who raises a, a rod and the Red Sea parts? I mean, who does that? And I'm supposed to lead these people? So what does God say to him? Because God is saying the same thing to us. Joshua 1 verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. In doing so that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for therein will you make your way prosperous and therein will you have good success. How do I cope with the pressure? God says, this Bible is the key. He says, you've got to read it, meditate on it, study it, and confess it. He says, as long as you're doing that and obeying what it says, through all the storms that are to come, I guarantee you success. So, of course, it is what we know that you must read it. You must read it. The Christian today who's not reading his Bible every day, I'm not saying every two days, I'm not saying every week, I'm saying every day, is setting up himself for the enemy to hit him or her. We don't just read it. We study it. We study it because the nature of the word of God is that a cursory read just reveals a layer to you. That's why we don't have many different Bibles. If you read any work that is, a, that is in, put in a, in, a, in a written form, after reading it 50 times, you'll be tired. How many agree? How many know that you can read the Bible a zillion times, you will not be tired? Why will you not get tired? Because the author of the Bible, every time you read it, will reveal a new layer of revelation concerning the same scripture to you. Spirit of God. So we study it. And we all know what study is. But how many people have studied the Bible the way they studied while they were waiting to get a, a degree or some diploma? We studied for our degrees. And like I say all the time, isn't it ironical that we are now, we've now found that our degrees are obsolete? I, I, I studied... I studied until I wanted to die for my law degree. I studied because I didn't study at the right time. So when I started studying, I had no choice. I was studying. I was popping proplos, studying like a lunatic. Now, look at me now. I, I'm not even using the law degree. I almost killed myself over something that I'm not using. And that's how most of us are. But I, 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 I can't even say that I've applied myself in terms of study, certainly in a concerted effort, the way I applied myself to studying for an absolute degree. So we study the word of God. 
And then we meditate on the word of God. And meditation is not the preserve of a far eastern religion. No, it is biblical. That's how the word becomes one with us. That's how the word sinks into our subconscious. That's how the word gets into a place where the word becomes the default mode. Do you know that you can meditate on the word to a point where you don't even have to ask, crank up a response? The word responds because the word is in you. But it takes meditation. It takes reading it, chewing on it. It takes writing it so you can remember. It takes muttering it to yourself so that the word becomes a part of you. And you get to a point where your default mode is the word. And then, of course, you confess it. And why do we encourage confession? Because it is in the speaking that the power of the word is released. It's not bad grammar when he says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. No, it's not a figure of speech. He literally means it shall not depart from your mouth because you are confessing it, you are speaking it. Because it is how we deal with pressure by speaking the opposite. And because this word of God, and these are not mere words, because they are spirit and they are life, they achieve what they are spoken for. So we, we, we encourage ourselves, we, we, we ask the spirit of God to make this word come alive. I can only deal with this situation by coming against it with the truth. The truth that the Spirit of God has, has put his breath upon, it becomes a sword in my hand and it achieves God's purpose. Can someone say amen to that? Amen. Number four. Our attitude. Dealing with pressure, overcoming it, is a function of attitude. If you, do, if you do a study, you will find that some people have a better proclivity to dealing with challenges in life because of their attitude. Now, those of us who don't have it naturally as a proclivity, we can get it. So that we are, that's how we face life. That's what the Bible encourages us to do. In James 1 verses 2 to 3, the Bible makes a statement that on its own would be pure insanity. The Bible says, Consider it wholly joyful, my brethren, whenever you're enveloped in or encounter trials of any sort or fall into various temptations. If you stop there, it simply does not make sense. Consider it joyful when you, when you face trials, when you face temptations. Consider it joyful. I should consider it joyful when my marriage is going through a trial. I should consider it joyful that my child is challenged. I should consider it joyful that my business is rocky. Maybe even the business has collapsed. I should consider it joyful. I should consider it joyful that I'm persecuted. I should consider it joyful that the thing is not working. I mean, what, what kind of sense does this make? What joy is there in that trial, that difficulty, that turbulence? I should consider it joyful that I have hit a rocky patch. I should consider it joyful that I'm, I'm being oppressed and persecuted by those who I serve. I should consider it joyful. 
It simply does not make any sense until you understand the next part. And what is the next part? Why does he say consider it joyful? Incidentally, when James wrote that scripture, he was in prison. So here's a man in prison who was facing death, facing execution, and was telling us to consider it joyful. He wasn't just lying on some fancy couch somewhere. The man was living what he was telling us, to consider it joyful when we face trials. And why do we consider it joyful? Because there is a reason for the trial. There is a reason for the temptation. And if we understand the reason, then we understand that it's part of a larger plan that God is working out for our life. For James went on to say, be assured and understand. You have to have an assurance and an understanding that this is not just some devil that has run amok and God cannot control him. God is in charge of his creation. Nothing happens without God saying so. God's purposes cannot be thwarted. God's purposes cannot be prevented. If God allowed this, there must be a reason that God allowed it. And James says to us, this is one of the reasons that God allowed it. He says, be assured and understand that the trial and proving of your faith is working out endurance and steadfastness and patience. It is leading to perfection. So God allowed it because it is a necessary part of the course of life that you have to take. You refuse to enlist yourself for it. He either enlisted you for it or allowed Satan to enlist you for it because God's aim is maturity, formation in the image of Christ. And without this, you will not go one step towards the image of Christ. So God says, allow him to go through that trial. And so when you understand that, you embrace it. It actually becomes like an exam. The sooner you pass the quicker they promote you out of there. Our attitude becomes important. The glass is never half empty. It is always half full. You can choose to see it half empty. Some people choose to see it half full. Same situation, but it's just perspective that makes the difference. When Jesus talks about it in Matthew's Gospel, the sixth chapter from verse 25 to 20, when he talks about anxiety and worry about life. And you know, we worry about a lot of things. We are anxious about a lot of things. Jesus says, why are you worrying about what you will eat, what you will drink? Why are you worried about your body, what you will put on it? And then he gives us some graphic examples. He says, look at the lilies in the valley. Look at the birds in the air. They don't worry and, and, and compare your value to me, to them. That's what Jesus is saying. How can a father that takes care of lilies and takes care of birds not take care of his daughter and his son? That's what Jesus is saying. And then he gives what I consider the clincher about worry. He says, can you add a cubit, an inch, or whatever the measurement is, to your stature by worrying? Can you do that? Now, now think about it. Somebody comes to church. You saw the person at the wedding on Sunday, on Saturday. Of course, the person was five foot seven. When the person walks through the door, the person is six foot six. Within 24 hours. And you say, what happened to you? The person said, worry. I worried and I just grew. And so Jesus says that if a human being cannot grow, by worrying, then worrying is a useless endeavor. It is from the pits of hell. It is designed to steal, kill, and destroy. So let's get our attitude right. Let's get our attitude right. 
sometimes it's even thinking about what's the worst. How many know once you can deal with the worst, it's, it's, it's over? What's the worst? Some, some of these things, what's the worst? You know, somebody owes, you know, your, you won't open the brown envelopes. He doesn't take it away. They'll write another one next week. <laughs> so you just open it. And have you, do you know that sometimes just a phone call and, and you, you sort it out? That's just a phone call. I always tell the story of this woman who came to see me and she couldn't pay her mortgage for three months. She was distraught. She was crying. Snot was coming out of her nose. And at that point in time, we were dealing with some serious challenges. So I looked at this woman. I said, you think this is a problem? This thing you think is a problem? I said, I said madam, it's okay. Stop crying. I, I was very pastoral. It's okay. It's okay. God will be with you. Stop crying. It's okay. Okay. God will make it way. But she was just crying snot everywhere. So after a while, I was just a bit, you know, the, the, the pastor part of me, the, the halo fell off my head. I just, just fell off my head. I said, madam. So she looked at me. I said, please stop crying. Go and rent a, go and rent a house. I said, there are many estate agents. Give them back their house. Go and rent a house. I said, and if you want scriptural reference for it, because you people always want scriptural reference, Paul rented a house when he was in Rome. I've told you, the Bible says you can go and rent a house. Go and rent a house. I said, go and rent a house. Go and rent a house and leave. I said, give them back their house. And the woman, the next, the next two days, phoned them and said, I want to give you back their house. I said, no, no, no. They said, well, you don't have to do that. We can negotiate. I said, look at what you've been crying about. That's how we worry about things that are not likely to happen. What number are we on? Number five? Number five? Positive thinking. Positive thinking. Now, this is the problem. A lot of things have been stolen from us. When I say positive thinking, guess what you think about? Those motivational speakers, and some of you think the new age, because they are the power of positive thinking or something like that. But positive thinking is very biblical. It is focusing our minds on the right things. In fact, when Paul talks to the Philippian church about anxiety and worry and talks to them about prayer and exchanging in prayer our burdens for the peace of God, the next thing he deals with in verse 8 is positive thinking. Philippians 4 verse 8. He says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on this. The Passion Translation says, so keep your thoughts continually fixed on all that is authentic, real, honorable, admirable, beautiful, respectful, pure and holy, merciful and kind, and fasten, fasten your thoughts on every glorious work of God, praising Him always. So the Bible gives us a checklist. So the moment something slips into my mind, I check it by the list. Is it pure? Is it just? Is it holy? Is it noble? Is it authentic? Is it real? Is it worthy of praising God? And if it doesn't line up with the checklist, it must be from the pits of hell. And I'm not going to allow it to take root in my mind. The Bible says, fasten, fix 
It's a voluntary action. It doesn't happen by you just relaxing. No, you have to be intentional about it. Literally, you have to fight the thoughts by fastening your mind. And you know, fasten means that you, you, you're, you're, you're hitched to it. You're, you're, you're meshed with it. Nothing can separate you from it. And so we force ourselves to think positively by making sure that any negative thought, and we have a checklist, it's not honorable, I don't want to think about it. It's not praiseworthy, don't even bring it near me. It is not pure, then it's from the pits of hell. Can someone say amen? amen. Number six. The power of praise and worship. What is the fundamental blessing of praise and worship for us? It is that as we start to praise God, to worship God, it takes our focus off our, ourselves and our circumstances and puts our focus on God. It's impossible for me to be talking about something and praising you and talking about you without my focus being on you. And as I do that, as my focus goes on to an all-powerful, all-seeing, merciful, loving, compassionate God, it suddenly puts my situation in perspective. I suddenly realize that against the backdrop of this awesome, majestic, all-powerful God, who loves me to distraction, literally, and distraction is inverted commas because God never distracted, but who loves me enough to send his son to die for me with what the Bible calls an unfailing love. As I realized that, I suddenly realized that, you know what, we can go through this. Not because of me, but because God is on my side. And that's what happened to Paul and Silas in Acts the 16th chapter from verse 25. If you read the run-up to that, they're going about their business. But because they speak the word of God and they offend people, they are arrested. They are tried. And it's, it's a sham of a trial. It's, it's rigged and set up. They are whipped. They are flogged. They are tossed into jail. It is really unfair for doing what? For following you, God? And they're kept in jail, shackled to prisoners. And at midnight, at the point where they knew that there's no hope we are going to be released today, at the darkest point in their lives, at that period when everything has gone silent, there's no hope of help, at the point where most people will give up, it simply cannot happen. It couldn't get worse, more painful. At that point, they start a praise session. And a lot of times we concentrate on the deliverance. Of course there was an earthquake. But then you think about the change that must have taken place in them as they started to praise God in that dark dungeon. Think about those who were listening to them, the other prisoners, as they started to hear love songs to God, and they look at their circumstances, but these circumstances don't line up, but then they praise God, they begin to praise Him in faith, begin to declare who He is. And you know, people say, you know, why is praise and worship so important in dealing with life's pressures? 
Because if you create a throne for God, built with the jewels of your words that come, up, come out as worship to him, if you create the throne and make the throne so beautiful and crusted with diamonds and rubies with your words, especially words that come from a place where such words should not come from. It is very priceless to God. God has no choice. The Bible says he inhabits the praises of his children. If you create the throne in the darkness, the light of the world will come and, and, and enter into the darkness. The giver of light will come and enter into the darkness. If you create the throne in a desert, the fountain of life will come from heaven and sit on the throne. If the fountain comes, then rivers of water will come into that situation. But you have to create the throne. And he finds it irresistible. That was the whole, the whole story, the, whole, the, the, the principle behind the story of the woman at the well. The time will come and now is when those that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. And such is God seeking for. And let's use all the technology that is there. Because, you know, the truth is that sometimes it is so bad if we're truthful to each other that you can't even worship yourself. But thank God that we can bring all the worshipers of the world into our room. All you need is an iPad or a phone, YouTube. Sinach can come and do a personal worship for you. Ariola can leave Ifechuko at home and come and sit on your bed and be worshipping God for you. Now, you can't worship yet because you've been so battered and bruised. But you can bring Israel all the way from Houston. He can stay wherever he likes. But you can bring Israel by YouTube all the way from Houston just by pressing that red, that red button with the white arrow, ping. And then where it says search, you say Israel and you look for... You can even find the... You can find the specific kind of worship songs you want. That right now, I need the Holy Spirit. Just worship songs, Holy Spirit. All of them come out for you. And then when they start worshiping, you will find that because worship is contagious, where it's in spirit and in truth, after a while, in the midst of your mess, in your despair, in the hole, you'll be listening to their words. Very soon you'll be singing. Very soon you'll be dancing. And the devil is a liar because he has been shamed. Number seven, don't walk alone. When I preach the message about Liverpool, that's one of the things I'll say. You know, their big song is, you'll never walk alone. Well, don't walk alone. There's power in community. That's how we were intended to function. No man or woman is an island. We are the body of Christ. We are dependent on each other. That's why Zoe said, talk to someone. Most people who sink into this darkness, the enemy has played a trick on them and made them feel ashamed, embarrassed, and unfortunately some communities don't help by stigmatizing some of these challenges. But we don't want to be there. The church is a haven. The vulnerable should be able to come to church and know that they can find a shoulder to lean on. That's why we are called a family. And they say that a problem shared is a problem halved. Just talk about it. And you know what I say to people? The beauty of our Christian faith is that if I share it with you, 
I can give you a burden to pray for me. So I'm no longer praying for myself. Somebody else is standing with me in prayer. Why will I not share it with someone? Because I need as many prayers as possible to petition the heavens. That's why Hebrews 10.25 is a scripture we must always remember. That we must not forsake the assembly or the gathering of the brethren. And so I thank God for social media and the internet. I thank God for being able to follow services on the internet. But believe me, nothing can replace the physical gathering of the brethren. If you, if you do church on the internet alone, it's a poor substitute. And sometimes it's needed because you cannot be there. Right now there are people who are listening to us all over the world. They can't be in London. The challenge is when somebody lives down the road in Collingdale and they're in their bed, instead of being here, to not just receive support and nurture, but also to be able to support someone as we are commanded to do by the fact that we are brothers and sisters. So don't let the enemy tell you that lie that you walk alone. No, you don't walk alone. It's a lie of the devil. And the enemy... The moment he wants to attack someone, the first thing he does is isolate the person. He suddenly tells you in your mind, they don't like me. They don't care for me. They were talking about me. You know, some people, some people come to ask me that. Some people ask other people, that did you tell pastor? He said, why? Because of the way he preached the message. Ah, I said, poor you. 1,000 people, 10,000 people thought it was for them. Is if, it, if everybody doesn't think the word is for them, it's not the word of God. So don't, 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 don't elevate yourself to where you should not be by thinking that we crafted a whole message just to preach for you alone. Oh, no, no, no. Be humble enough to know that it's applying to all of us. It's the word of God. Number eight. Gratitude. I came across this phrase. It struck a chord in me. The seeds of depression and bitterness will never grow in a, in a thankful heart. Once you learn to be thankful. And it's interesting that with regards to being thankful, the Bible has kind of hemmed us in. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything or for all things be thankful to God. For all things be thankful to God. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a massive phrase. For all things. Yeah, or in everything. What does that mean? It means everything I am going through. Oh, God of mercy, please help us have revelation. It means that I got sacked from my job. How many know that's everything? It means that the marriage eventually collapsed. How many know that's everything? It means that the child still hasn't come back. How many know that's everything? How many know everything is everything? It says in everything give thanks. And it doesn't say that this is a suggestion. Dear Christian, hear me. It says it is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So not to give thanks is to be disobeying the will of God for a Christian. Says everything, give thanks. 
And then just so that we don't find a way out, in Ephesians 5 verse 20, it says, for everything, give thanks. You know, there are people who are experts at splitting the hairs of Scripture. So God said, this one, you will not escape from this one. In everything, give thanks. For everything, give thanks. Come out of that one. So it says, for everything, give thanks. And of course, people are entitled to ask questions. And of course, you will expect non-Christians to ask that question. But for Christians, we understand it. So am I to thank God for the cancer? Am I to thank God for, for the collapsed marriage? Am I to thank God for... No, 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 no. God is not saying that. But God is saying in the midst of that trial, if you look hard enough, you will find many reasons to give God thanks. So th th I'm thanking God. That there's, a, there's a challenge, yes. The business is collapsing, but I'm thanking God that I have life to try another time and set up another business. I'm thanking God. I'm thanking God that the marriage is rocky, but that I am in a church that has a marriage ministry like Tight Knots and Kemi and Bode who are supporting me as the marriage. I'm going through this rocky marriage. I'm thanking God. The child has gone astray, won't even accept God and the faith. But I'm thanking God that I have a child I can pray for, for God to turn around that child and bring that child back to the faith. I'm thanking God for that. So I, there's a lot to thank God for. And if we look in everything, there's a lot to thank God for. It didn't happen as I planned, but I'm thanking God for, for life and family. I'm thanking God for the church. I'm thanking God for friendships. I'm just grateful to God. I know a young man who faced a difficult situation in his life as his health was challenged. And his testimony touches me till today. For what did he say? He said, when people said to him, why you? He said, but why not me? If anybody has a better chance of beating this thing, I have that chance of beating it because of the support system that's around me. That is a Christian's way of thinking. Because I can thank God for that. The seeds of depression and bitterness will never grow in a thankful heart. Is it any wonder that the message Bible says of Psalms 100 verse 4, enter with the password, thank you. It's a password into God's heart. Number nine, learn to laugh. <laughs> you know, the moment someone gets sick, the first thing they think about, doctor and medicine. Even good Christians, when they go to see the doctor, then they go and get the medicine, then they remember to pray. Whereas it should be the other way around. Just pray and then go and use medicine as, 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 as is needed. So, and why do we do that? Because we just have faith in medicine. You know, we have faith in medicine. And especially in a developed world. You know, in some parts of the world, you can't have faith in medicine because you know, it might not be the right medicine. You would not be there, no doctor there. But in a developed world, we have faith in medicine. We kind of know that by the time I see my GP and by the time I see the consultant, something will start happening. So if we have faith in medicine, okay, let's apply it then. The Bible says in Proverbs 17, verse 22, that a merry heart is like medicine. So what does that mean? It means that if I can get my heart into a good state some humor, some laughter in my heart is as good as me taking medicine to deal with whatever I'm dealing with. 
And if you don't believe that, look at the Passion Translation of that scripture. The Passion Translation, 17 verse, Proverbs 17, verse 22 says, A joyful, cheerful heart brings healing to both body and soul. There's just something about laughter. You know, sometimes you should just take a comedy that makes you laugh. Put it on and just laugh with yourself. Do you know what you're doing? You're taking doses of multivitamins and what are those things called? Antioxidants, all those things. You're taking it. It's just that it's comedy. You know, some people, to get out of that darkness, they just need to laugh. Just learn to laugh. And there's a lot to laugh at in life. You know, the, the world is a comedy. There's just a lot to laugh at. You can choose to see the funny side of life. That's what I'm trying to say. Of course, there are a lot of serious things and a lot of terrible things happening. But you can choose to see the funny side of life. I don't hang very long with people who don't make me laugh and who don't laugh with me. My wife, Shalala, will tell you. I don't hang. You know, this life is complex enough. Do you know, do you know what I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis? problems, challenges, and I come and meet somebody who wants to hang with me, and your face is like this all the time. No, 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 no. I'm not going to hang with you. The issues are many. I just need some, I need someone who will just make me laugh. Let's just, let's just have a, a light moment, and let's just laugh. You know some people, you've never seen them laugh. And some people think that it is, it is, it is that's the way to show you that you're religious. I'm always looking at them thinking, you have a problem. I cannot imagine that Jesus wasn't full of laughter. How else do you hang at Matthew's house if you're not laughing? Everybody in Matthew's house was laughing. The whole place was full of tax collectors. The people were just riotous. So if you came there, if Jesus came there looking what we think is pious, do you think they would have, they would have allowed him into that place? Do you think they would have stayed around him? No, he must have been there laughing with them and looking for a chance to preach his gospel, preach himself, show himself. So please laugh. It's good medicine. See now, you can't even laugh. That shows you the problem you have. <laughs> and lastly, as we end, about laughter, I remember the story we heard about a man who was very, very, very ill. I'm sure you've heard the story. He was terminally ill, and he'd been told that there was nothing that could be done. So he decided that, well, since he said I'm going to die, I better just die with... Uh, with Humor and laughter. So he went and got all these comedies, you know, DVDs it was then, and just sat in his house waiting for death to come and was just watching all these things, just laughing, watching every morning. He gets up, he laughs some more, watching, just laughing, and waiting for death to come. After a while, the time they gave him to die had passed and he was still alive. So he went back to the hospital to say, you know, what's happening? You guys said I would have died. <laughs> they checked him, and every trace of the ailment had disappeared, not with medicine, but with humor and laughter. The Bible says, a merry heart maketh good like medicine. And lastly, number 10, look after the temple. The Bible says that our bodies are, are the temples of the Spirit of God. That tells me that 
There is a responsibility for each one of us to be temple keepers, responsible temple keepers. And I can talk about many things that we could do in this regard, but let me just talk about three very quickly in terms of being responsible so that the, the adverse or the converse, the opposite, the converse, is irresponsibility. Number one, exercise. Now, the days of exercising for most of us to have a six-pack is over. Is go vice. Not, not, not on this side again, six-pack. No, not on this side. The days of exercising to have an hourglass figure, you know, like the hourglass, is over. For most of us, 80% of us, maybe they are 20% of the young, but for most of us, it's over. To get a six-pack, I have to live in the gym. I have to do 180 press-up sit-ups every morning. My back will be gone by then. I have to do the plank for five minutes, the plank. I have to not eat anything that I like, not eat anything at all that I like. And they say I must eat it by 6 p.m. Who eats dinner by 6 p.m.? <laughs> so the six-pack the six is a dream. The hourglass is a dream for a lot of, a lot of our ladies. It is a dream. You can put uh, Beyonce's picture there and just be dreaming, dreaming, dreaming. So we realize that, yes, we can aim for those things, but what's the likelihood? Let's just aim. But we know now that we are exercising for well-being. It is scientifically proven, scientifically proven, that the average person requires at least 30 minutes of exercise three times a day, preferably five times a day. Five times a week, pardon me. Three times a week, preferably five times a week. No, not a day, not a day, not a day. Some of you were about to resign that if that's the case, let me just die and go to heaven. <laughs> three times a week, 30 minutes. So, not to do that is an act of irresponsibility. Let's call a spade a spade. Because this temple is here for an assignment. It has a purpose. And it must fulfill God's purpose. So one must be responsible because if not, there are consequences of irresponsibility. And like I said in the first service, I, I just hope that there will be nobody in this congregation who will get to heaven and Peter will be irritated at that gate. I'm just looking at you thinking, what are you doing here? With that his sword, he just whacked the person. You're not even supposed to be here. You have an assignment. Come on, move into heaven. Let's find somebody else to do your assignment. That is going to happen if we're not careful. And why? Because we have abused the body. And you know, you don't have to. You know, when we talk about exercise, people think we're saying, go and register in a gym. No, if you like that, you can do that. But you don't have to. You know, my wife, she, does, she, she doesn't spare me in certain areas. So this is one of those areas. So I've been saying to her that I'm feeling a bit lethargic. And I'm getting aches and pains in my body. And the other day I said to her, my back, my lower back is hurting. I said it must be the bed. She said, Agu, just get up and walk a bit more. She said, because on, without knowing, 
I've, slunk in, I've slumped into a place where, Sochi, bring the remote control to me. Sochi, get that here drink from the fridge. So she said, I go walk to the fridge and walk back. That's exercise. Climb the stairs, go upstairs, come down. So you don't have to go to a gym. Just walk around your house. Don't just be a, a potato cow. Don't just don't become a vegetable on the, on the couch. Walk around. Go to the fridge. Seven steps. Come back. Seven steps. Take the glass to the sink. Five steps. Come back. Five steps. Go upstairs. Instead of saying, eh, can you bring for me? No, no, no. You go upstairs and come downstairs. By the time you do that for the whole day, if you have one of those watches that is measuring your steps, you will find out you have done as much work as going to the gym for 30 minutes. That's your day done. Walk a bit, a bit, walk a bit. Walk to the tube station, Uber, 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 Uber. No, forget about Uber. Walk, walk to the station. It's a 15-minute walk. Leave Uber alone. Walk to the station. Somebody say to the person next to you, speaking to you. And then also let's be responsible about what we eat. You know, we, we just can't. You, you can't. We can't eat anyhow. I, I like food. I'm a foodie. I am a foodie. I like food. I like cooking. I mean, yesterday, my wife will tell you it was my cooking day. I made uh, the seafood casserole. I made chicken with mushrooms. I made F4, the Nigerian food. I was just cooking. Yeah, no, true, true. I enjoy cooking. I enjoy cooking. So I love food. So if anybody has a weakness for food, I have. But I realize that I cannot just be eating these things. I can't. It's very painful. It's a war. <laughs> but I can't because I will be abusing the body. I'm in a fight against sugar. Fight against it. And then trust Shola to always pop my balloon. Because here I am saying no sugar, no sugar, but I can, I can, I can use honey, plenty honey. Then she comes back from somewhere and says to me, they say honey is the younger brother of sugar. <laughs> I say, can I at least win the sugar? Let me use this honey first just to keep my life going. I mean, how do I drink tea without honey? But I, what I'm trying to say to you is just be responsible. Okay, you, you can't, you, you, six o'clock is a bit too early for dinner, but surely dinner cannot be at 12 midnight, 11 p.m. Surely it cannot be. It cannot be. It must be affecting something. And lastly, sleep. What was Elijah's problem that made him suicidal? After a victory on Mount Carmel of, that of those proportions, Elijah's problem, the Bible makes it clear that his problem wasn't a spiritual problem in the, same, in the way we think spiritual. Elijah's problem was that the man was hungry and tired. So when God met him after he had contemplated suicide, there was no speaking any great words, no binding any devils, losing. You know, people always think devil, devil, devil. One day Satan is going to say, why would they blame me for everything? I was not there when the man chose not to sleep. What did God give Elijah? They baked food in front of him. And you know, the baking, the aroma, Elijah must have just thought, I can't wait to eat it. He ate the food and then slept. Then the angel woke him up again and gave him more food. And then made him go back to sleep. And after he woke up, that's when he could go in the strength of the Lord. Some of us just need to rest. Let's call a spade a spade. 
The pressure of life is too much. You're not wired to function like that. I'm not wired to function like that. Let's just learn to rest. And you know, resting can be difficult. A few weeks ago, I went away on a retreat. And I told Shola, I won't be calling you till the retreat is over. Two hours after I got there, I was calling her. And why was I calling her? Because I just thought, what am I supposed to do with myself? Because I'm so used to being active and energetic that just the thought of lying down and doing nothing, just playing music. So I played music. I read a bit. I played music. I read a bit. I prayed for a few hours. I looked at the time. It was just about seven hours. I thought, what? Only seven hours. The day hasn't gone. And that's how most of us are. We're just constantly on the go. I, and what, what car does not stop for a service? What car do you buy and you don't service it and rest it for the duration of the car's life and you expect the car to function? What soldier is engaged in a battle and a war and is not rotated out of the theater of war to take a rest? And so sometimes we are binding and losing what really we should just rest and eat. And sometimes we get so religious, so I'm going on this retreat, and I'm thinking it's a serious retreat. I'm going to fast and pray. I'm going to seek the Lord's face. So on the way there, the Lord says to me, don't worry about fast. Ah, I said, no, Lord, I have to hear you, I'll fast. And then I thought to myself, Agu, the person you want to speak to is telling you it's okay, go and eat and rest. But my religious self said, no, no, no. A retreat where I want to hear God, eat and rest? No. Over eggs, omelette, hear God? No. And that's how we get ourselves into, into a tight spot. The person who is going to answer is telling me, it's okay, go and rest. Your body needs rest. I'm saying, no, I cannot rest because you must hear me. I must fast. So guess what? It is my fasting I'm dependent on, not God himself. And a lot of us are like that. So sometimes God is saying, just rest. Go, go away for two days. Lie in bed on a Saturday. Not some naming ceremony, some 60th birthday, some 50th birthday, some 40th birthday, some friends this. You know, we just, we're just, we've, we've become social machines all over the place. And guess what we always say? We say, but if I don't go, they'll be offended. If you die and go to heaven, they'll continue with their lives. I can assure you, I can assure you. They'll come and cry at your grave and continue. In fact, some might not even come. So let's, let's, let's learn that. What do they say to us? They say, you and I need a minimum of seven hours sleep for our bodies to reboot itself. That's what they say. You cut short your sleep, you're not giving your body the time to reboot itself. A body that over so many years does not reboot itself must one day tell you, you haven't allowed me to reboot, so we have shortened the thing because we can't continue. Come and go. That's how it works. That's how it works. Just simply because we won't do what, what, we're, what God has designed the body to do. Can someone say amen? amen? So we don't have to succumb to the pressures. We don't have to succumb to the darkness. We don't have to succumb and be overwhelmed. We don't have to give in. If we are wise and we obey God, then we can find ourselves at a place where in the midst of the pressures, we are thriving. Can someone say amen? amen. It doesn't mean the pressures won't be there, but we will be thriving in the midst of the pressures. Hallelujah. Amen. As I end...
with one scripture, John 14, verse 27. John 14, verse 27, as I end. And I like the Passion Translation of this scripture, John 14, verse 27. I leave the gift of peace with you. My peace. Not the kind of fragile peace given by the world, but my perfect peace. Don't yield to fear or be troubled in your hearts. Instead, be courageous. What does Jesus say? There is a kind of peace the world gives you. It's a fragile peace. What does fragile mean? It means it is, it is delicate. It cannot withstand pressure. It breaks under pressure. Jesus says, I don't give that kind of peace. But with you, if you will accept it, I leave my own kind of peace. What is Jesus' kind of peace? It surpasses understanding. When the Bible says it surpasses understanding, what does it mean? The Bible is saying it simply defies logic. It defies reasoning. It is really supernatural. You can't explain it. You're looking at the person and thinking the person should crumble, but the person is growing stronger and thriving because the person has the peace of God that passes all understanding. One translation says it garrisons the person's heart. And we get that in Christ. We receive him and we walk with him. We receive that peace in him. And we face challenges and face storms and face difficulties, but the peace of God garrisons our heart. We don't receive Jesus in our hearts. The best we can get is a fragile peace that the world gives. And that isn't your portion. Bow your heads. Father, we thank you and we bless you. Maybe there's someone here who hasn't received the gift of Jesus into his heart. At best, what you have is a fragile peace. You don't have the peace of God that passes all understanding. But if you open up your heart and receive him, Jesus, you get all that comes with him. And so, with all heads bowed, if there's anyone who's saying, I want to receive him into my life, if you would slip your hands up wherever you are, you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Online, you're watching online, you're listening on Jesus House Radio, you want to receive Jesus. If you're watching online and listening on Jesus House Radio, just follow the instructions that will come on the screen. If you're here, slip your hand up. And wherever you are, you can just receive him into your heart. Receive him into your heart. Father, we thank you. Lord, we bless you. Father, we ask that you help us. Help us to withstand the pressures, to overcome the pressures, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name. And together we say, Amen. Amen. Go and give God a clap of him. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.